You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Our visitor here, uh, where we do warmly welcome you. If you've not been here before and you um, wonder what we do, we, we praise God and we look at his word. And we have been looking through the book of Job. And we're getting towards the end of that. Uh, Some of you may be delighted. I have to say I'm quite disappointed. Uh, I love Job. And I love this passage that we're going to look at this morning. But I do warn you, it will be a wee bit difficult. Um, Say to the children, if you don't have one of these, please feel free to get one of these. We said we were talking about three schools. One is Sunday school. We're going to look at two other schools that God uses to teach us. One is the school of suffering. And the other is the school of creation. Um, Let's begin by reading part of chapter 36 to start with. Elihu continued, bear with me a little longer and I will show you that there is more to be said in God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe justice to my maker. Be assured that my words are not false. One perfect in knowledge is with you. Well, let's actually stop there. Um, have you ever met anyone like that? Now, I realize, and I, I, I say this in all sincerity, that sometimes I can appear to be like that. I have an answer for everything. Um, there is another verse in uh, Job earlier on where Job says to his friends, truly you are the people and wisdom will die with you. And there you have a conversation that could be a, an argument in our house. One perfect in knowledge is with you. Truly, you are the people and wisdom will die with you. Uh, there's a, I mean, it's an incredible, arrogant statement, isn't it? Here's a book that deals with this enormous subject of suffering. Here's Job who's really suffering. And Elihu comes and says, one perfect in knowledge is with you. Now, when someone says that, there's a tendency immediately to say, I'm not going to listen. But actually... You can learn things from people who've got quite disagreeable characteristics. And that's why I would make a personal appeal to those of you who have noticed one or two of my disagreeable characteristics. Ignore them. You can still learn from God's word because it's not about me. It's about God. I think as well this passage, it's a bridge between two things. It's a bridge between the speeches of Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, Job's friends. And the word of the Lord, which is going to come in chapter 38 from the whirlwind, where the friends have been discussing suffering and Job's suffering, and God is going to speak about the creation. And uh, Elihu brings these two things together in chapter 36 and 37. And I think there are two main lessons we're going to learn from this. And one is simply that there is a Christian view of suffering which is better than any other view you will ever hear anywhere in the world. We all have a view of suffering. But the Christian view of suffering is just enormously, well, it's true, but it's enormously comforting and also disturbing. And secondly, there's something that we can learn from the weather. But let's do the the suffering bit first. God is mighty, but does not despise men. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. But he enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. But if men are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. 
He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart harbor resentment. Even when he fetters them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction, to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. But now you are laden with the judgment due the wicked. Judgment and justice have taken hold of you. Be careful that no one entices you by riches. Do not let a large bribe turn you aside. Would your wealth or even all your mighty efforts sustain you so that you would not be in distress? Do not long for the night to drag people away from their homes. Beware of turning to evil, which you seem to prefer to affliction. Let's just go back a bit to verse 10 and 11. Let's say some of the things that Elihu says that are wrong and that are not the Christian view and are not what the Bible teaches. The first is simply this, prosperity theology. If they obey and listen to him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. If anyone ever teaches you that in a church, get up, walk out. Because that's from the pit of hell. To believe that if you just obey, everything you in, in your life will prosper. If you just have enough faith, if you just do this. There are people who suffer enormously, who are lovely, godly Christians, who are obeying God and see incredible trauma. And Elihu is wrong in that. And anyone who teaches that is not teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's also wrong to look for instant retribution and reward. So, for example, you go away from this church today and you say, forget it, I'm going to run away from God you're probably not going to be struck by lightning. There is a grave in England somewhere where a man stood and yelled, I think it's in Peterborough, he said, go on God, if you're there, hit me with lightning. And he got hit with lightning. And his gravestone reflects that experience. But for most people, you can walk out of here, you can say to God, get lost. And you're not going to be hit with lightning and disaster is not going to happen. Any more that if you go from here penitent and determined after new obedience, that God will immediately reward you. He might do so, but it is not guaranteed that he will do so. Those are wrong understandings. And speaking of wrong understandings, I want to give a summary in a short time. So this is going to be, by definition, it's going to be very sweeping. And you may have questions, and please feel free to ask them. But uh, I suggest, almost rather than asking them, uh, I've been reading... In the Providence of God, Tim Keller's latest book, which came down onto my Kindle on Friday, and I've, I, can, I can't stop reading it. It is the most extraordinary book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, in which he takes the wide, typical Keller takes the wide sweeping view of what's being taught in the world, takes what's taught in the Bible, and then applies it personally. And it is wonderful. And he gives this great summary And I'm just taking this from him of the different views in the world that people have of suffering. There's the moralistic view. Live badly, you suffer. Live good, you do well. That is very largely an Eastern view as well as a Western view. It's the view of karma. It's the view that enables you to look at somebody who's disabled and say they were bad in a previous life. That's why they suffer. That's your karma. 
Another Eastern view is the self-transcendent view of Buddhism. I, for me, for the life of me, I never understand why Western people, especially kind of trendy, yuppie Western people, like Buddhism. Because I think it's insane. The, the whole idea that you have in Buddhism, the Buddhist aspect of suffering is you suffer because of unfulfilled desire. So the solution is get rid of all desire. All desire. Just get rid of it. That nirvana is the state of nothingness. You are at peace because you have no desire. So you have no suffering because you have nothing that is not fulfilled or unfulfilled. It's a self-transcendent view. Going beyond yourself. I'm telling you this. The reason that that is insane is you never escape yourself. You can escape everybody else. You can run away. The one person you can't run away from is yourself and God. There's the fatalistic view. Very much for me, ancient paganism, the gods, or Islam, the inscrutable will of Allah. If you're a Muslim, you're bound to believe what the Quran says, that you could live good all your days, and then the will of Allah is, on the very last day, he kills you and you go to hell. And if that's what Allah wills, too bad. And that, that kind of, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be is a horrendous view of suffering. What use is it for someone suffering with cancer that they look at the stars, that they look at their horoscope? Then there's the dualistic view, very much stemming from Greek philosophy, the ancient Greek philosophy, the battleground between the forces of good and evil, that there's a battle going on and people who suffer are casualties in the midst of this war. Now, Keller argues, and I would agree completely, that these are the traditional views of suffering that have prevailed throughout the world. They offer different ways of coping with it. Do good. Be detached. Endure it. Get enlightenment. That's how you cope with suffering. But there's a fifth view, and it's the one which is predominant in a Western secular culture. And it's the one which you and I have imbibed and we, we, we take on board. And again, I can only survey this, and some of you may pick up different things, so please, please, please ask questions about this, because it's really, really important. Basically, Western secular culture sees the world as naturalistic, as consisting only of material forces, no spiritual forces at all. And someone like Richard Dawkins, in his book Out of Eden, will say this, the total amount of suffering in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, some people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now what Dawkins is saying is this, he's saying suffering means nothing at all. So your relative has cancer. Your friend's baby died. You are going through the most traumatic time. And it all means nothing. There is no purpose in it at all. If you take the view of our culture, you create your own meaning. But the trouble is, if self-manufactured meaning, you create your own meaning, that means you're stuck with this world. And that means that your life is just about your individual comfort and your individual happiness. And I wonder how many of you this morning, what's really bugging you 
is that you're not happy, you're not comfortable, you're not wealthy, you're not married, you're not well, whatever it is. And the whole of your life is focused on that because that's the only meaning that you can have. Now, if that's the view, and I think that is the view of our culture, then, then suffering achieves nothing. Suffering always wins. And that's why in our culture, to deal with suffering, we need experts. We need medical experts and psychological experts. We need social experts. We need civil experts. Any kind of suffering at all. There's a tragedy. Let's say in Dundee this week, there was a school shooting and 10 kids were shot. First thing that will happen, send in the counsellors. Why? Because their job is to alleviate pain, to remove as much stress as possible. I was fascinated. Um, Again, this is from Keller's book. He quotes Dr. Robert Spitzer in a program in the BBC 2007, which I remember is an amazing program. Spitzer was the man behind... um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which in the States all uh, American psychiatrists use, and it's hugely influential throughout the world, and I think they're now on to their fifth or sixth edition that's just come out. But Spitzer basically wrote most of the third edition. And 25 years later, he said this, we have wrongly diagnosed normal human experiences of grief, sorrow, and anxiety as mental disorders. Because you see, in our culture, you're not allowed to be sad. You have to overcome that. You have to deal with that. You're not allowed to experience pain. And in our culture, it means that suffering is, is made many, many times worse. Because we feel guilty about it, because we're not supposed to have it, because we medicalize it, because we cannot deal with it. It's really interesting. Um, in a way, this is a wee bit difficult for me. Because um, two years ago, as you know, this weekend, I, I came very close to death myself. I was in hospital for a period of time. And I very, very much enjoyed speaking two or three times to the psychologist from Nine Wells, talking about the experience, the trauma, and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things she said to me was, she said, it's it's incredible how you're not psychologically damaged. Now, I know the jokes. I know, you. how would would they know? I I realize all that. But she said, you know, and, and, and we talked about it. And as far as I know, she's not a believer. But she said, your faith has made you incredibly robust. And I think we have to be very, very careful how we look at all our aspects of suffering because our instant reaction is when someone is suffering, let's take it away, let's take it away, let's take it away. But what if we can't take it away? Is it better, supposing you could give someone a pill that would make them feel numb so they no longer feel the pain and the loneliness and the overwhelming sorrow and anxiety, would that be right to give it to them? The answer could be yes, of course it could be. I'm not making an argument against medication. But what if you then give them that pill and they then cannot deal with the issues that are causing the suffering and the pain? Does that become right then? And I would argue no. Now in the passage you said, there's a Christian, I think an overview of the Christian understanding of uh, suffering. Look at verse 15. Those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. 
Martin Israel says this, it is one of the fundamental contributions of pain to make people wake up to a deeper quality of existence and to seek evidence for meaning in their lives beyond the immediate sensations that arrest their attention. How many of us live for immediate sensations? I've got to have that. I've got to have that caffeine. I've got to have that sexual experience. I've got to have that. I've got to buy this. I've got to have that. I've got to get therapy from shopping. And maybe, maybe, God says, no, I want you to have more. But you're not listening. Suffering reveals our character. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. The Bible does not say that all suffering is in and of itself positive. The Puritan John Flavel said this, A cross without Christ never did any good to any man. People who suffer without Jesus are in hell. Elihu is concerned with the righteous, with those who are believers who fall into suffering. We kind of can understand believers or um, people who we think are bad getting their comeuppance. But we really struggle when it's good people who suffer for apparently no cause. Elihu argues, and I think rightly, that suffering is divine discipline. If you turn to Hebrews 12, verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. How many of you have got that verse up on your walls? Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So a Christian view of suffering is this. As believers, and we know Jesus Christ... That our suffering is a form of teaching us and of discipline. I think it's Jim Philip who said this. There are those in the church who have an obdurate unbelief. Who have lived all their days within the organized life of the church. Yet have never come to a vital saving response to the word of God's grace. And I'm telling you. You could have the best preacher in the world. You could have the most dynamic mu- music. You could have the most wonderful group of pe- people around you. And you are so hardened to the gospel that the only way that God can get through to you is through suffering. Sometimes that is why. Because there's one thing worse than suffering, and that's hardness. I don't know where I got this from, but I loved it. A saying, the wise man rides the wave, the fool is drowned by it. Verse 14 talks about they die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines. They were going to worship the the gods around rather than the God of the Bible. 
And they were fulfilling their sexual fantasies and everything else as well. And they were so hardened to God that they died amongst the male prostitutes. So the question why then actually becomes the question in a Christian sense, for what purpose? Lord, what do you want me to learn from this experience? Romans 8, 28, we must know. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And that's what faith is. Faith is trusting God in the dark when we don't see the way. Why should a parent or teacher discipline, at least a good one? How should we react to discipline? It is to learn. And suffering reveals our character. I think suffering also reveals the character of God. Martin Luther said this, I never knew the meaning of God's word until I came into affliction. I've always found it to be one of my best schoolmasters. Psalm 119 verse 71, it was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. Anderson says this, every experience, good or bad, brings fresh opportunities to learn more about God. God teaches us through joy. God teaches us through beauty. God teaches us through his word. He teaches us through suffering. And I would like to suggest to you one of the reasons why. Because sometimes we don't listen. We don't listen. We are self-confident, self-reliant, self-obsessed. In fact, we are so full of self, it's like our ears are blocked with the thickest wax possible. And God sends us suffering so that he can shringe out our ears, so that he can soften that. And so we can actually get to hear what he is saying. We do this. You do this. You come in here, you listen to God's word, and it's like a, it's just deadness to you. It's not alive because you're not listening. And I think God allows suffering in our lives so that we would listen to him. I think he also allows suffering because in some way he's pointing to the suffering of his son. By his wounds we are healed. And I think he's telling us also that one day all of that suffering will be gone. In this world, the secular view of suffering says this, you shouldn't have to suffer. You trip over a pavement, that's the council's fault, sue them. You're feeling ill, go to the hospital, and if the hospital don't heal you, sue them. You're feeling miserable, leave your wife. You're feeling fed up with your kids, dump them. You don't like your job, sue your boss. Because you have the right to be happy, you have the right to be fulfilled. And no one should, no suffering should get in that way. And God comes along and says, actually, this is the way the world is. It's a world that's full of pain. It's a world that's full of sorrow. And it's a world that's full of suffering. And you as my people are not going to be immune from that. But I'm going to teach you through it. And you are going to learn. And you are going to change. And you are going to be deepened. And there will come a time when there will be no more sorrow. No more pain. No more suffering. But meanwhile, you have to live here with this. And God says, I want you to look at my son. I want you to look at what I did. Do you really think that God sent Jesus to die on the cross as some kind of sadistic, masochistic, oh, look how gory it can be? Do you not think he sent Jesus to die on the cross only because it was the only way 
that suffering could ultimately be dealt with. And I think, as you look at this passage, we look at what the Bible has to say overall, every single view of suffering in the world actually minimalizes it and gives us a false solution. The Christian view deals with the reality of pain and sorrow and suffering and doesn't go wave a magic wand and it disappears. But it gives us a solution, and that solution is found in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to say a bit more about that but, and also what we learned from the weather just to finish off. But we're going to sing. Uh, we're going to sing from Psalm 42. We're going to sing verses 6 to 11. And this is a, a song of someone who is crying out to God in their suffering and in their sorrow and knowing that God heals. My soul within, depressed, it, within me is depressed. I therefore will recall you still. From Jordan's land, from Herman's height, and from the top of Miser Hill. He's recalling his previous experiences of knowing God, and he's crying to God to come to him. Let's stand and sing the tune Chryselius, and John will lead us. My soul within me is depressed, I therefore will recall you still. From Jordan's land, from Hermon's heights, and from the top of Mazer Hill. Deep calls to deep as with a roar, your waterfalls cascading roll. Your waves and breakers fall on me, they overwhelm my very soul. By day the Lord directs his love, his song remains with me at night. A prayer to him who is my Lord, my only source of life and light. This way will say to God, my rock, why have you so forgotten me? Why must I go about in grief, downtrodden by the enemy? My bones in mortal agony are groaning while my enemies say, Wherever is this God of yours, they scoff at me throughout the day. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed in me? Trust God, for I will praise Him yet 
my Savior and my God is he. Please be seated. And some of you know that experience in that psalm. Deep calls to deep as the waterfalls overwhelm you. It is an overwhelming experience. It is one that if you can imagine, you know, you're a teenager or a young person, you fall in love and your, your, your girlfriend or your boyfriend just drops you and you're absolutely heartbroken and you're overwhelmed with sorrow. Well, what the psalmist is describing there is the experience that, that many Christians have had of just, why does this stuff keep happening? Why does all this, this, this junk, why does all this rubbish, why, why, why is it just so overwhelming? And he, he calls out to God. And that's what Job did. This is the, uh, the continuation of that. God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him or said to him, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work, which men have praised in song. All mankind has seen it. Men gaze on it from afar. How great is God beyond our understanding? The number of his years is past finding out. He draws up the drops of water, which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion? See how he scatters his lightning about him, bathing the depths of the sea. This is the way he governs the nations and provides food in abundance. He fills his hands with lightning, commands it to strike its mark. His thunder announces the coming storm. Even the cattle make known its approach. At this, my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen, listen to the roar of his voice to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and send it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour, so that all men he has made may know his work. He stops every man from his labor. The animals take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber, the cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice, and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge? You who shelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind, can you join him in spreading out the skies, hard as a mirror of cast bronze? Tell us what we should say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Should he be told that I want to speak? Would any man ask to be swallowed up? Now no one can look at the sun, bright as it is in the skies, after the wind has swept them clean. Out of the north he comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice 
and great righteousness he does not oppress. Therefore men revere him, for does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? God is great in power. How great is our God beyond understanding? The voice of God. He's saying, listen, Job, stop and consider God's wonders. He mentions three storms, the rainstorm, the winter storm, and the summer storm. He's speaking about a world in which harsh things happen, frozen by the ice of God. The rain and lightning are both ways of God's judging the nations and God's blessing the nations. Is this just for the benefit of human beings? No. God cares for the rest of creation as well. God is free to do as he pleases without having to explain everything to us as part of his purpose for mankind. Thunder is used as an image here. That God's voice is mysterious, unpredictable, terrifying. The voice of the Lord is majestic and loud. And then verses 14 to 24 speak of the summer weather. Again, the lightning, the clouds hanging poised, the sweltering heat in the south wind, the blazing sky as hard as bronze, and the blinding light of the summer sun. And Elihu's point is correct. It is simply this. Can you understand it? You can't even do that. But God not only understands, God does, and God controls. Each section of this, this part of this poem, this hymn, if you like, begins with a, a description of God's incomprehensibility. If you cannot understand what God is doing in nature, how do you think you will understand what God is doing in our lives? Can we see God? If we can't even look at the sun, can we look at God? The Almighty is beyond our reach, exalted in power. God is just. God is sovereign. God does not oppress. Now, I think the one thing he gets wrong in all of this is simply to say that God is so great, he's beyond our reach. How can we get to him, and why should he bother with us? Elihu is proved wrong in the next chapter when God comes and speaks. And you see, that's what you and I need. What kind of arrogance have we developed in our common human psyche that we say, unless we understand God, we won't believe in him. Unless we can tell God what he should be like, we won't accept him. And I think the wonderful thing about Christianity is that it talks about the revelation of God, not just in nature, but the revelation of God through Jesus. And we have that in his word. God comes to us. And that is the most extraordinary and the most wonderful thing. So what would our response, what should our response be to all of this? Let me go back to verse 14. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. You need to do this. You need to stop. You're rushing around like a demented rabbit. You're, you're trying to get everything sorted, everything fixed, every problem dealt with, every bill paid, every relationship sorted, every emotion dealt with. You're trying to get your whole life sorted out. And God says, stop. Just stop. Stop and consider. Stand and be still. Be still and know that I am God. Let me apply this in a slightly different way. Using the language of, of the weather that Elihu uses. 
These natural phenomena that we see also mirror God's dealings with us. Sometimes we are frozen by the icy icy blast of providence. It's not just outside that we are cold, it's inside that we are cold. We are hardened. We are are just so afraid, so lonely, and, and so bitter, and so angry. And then along comes the light, and it begins to shine, and God comes in awesome majesty. Now, I don't know every single one of you here, but I know this about every single person here. You and I have precisely two options when we deal with suffering and when we deal with this. You can go and look at the beauty and say, I mean, I was up in the Sidlows at, uh, I can't remember what the name of the lock's called, it's the two locks as you go over to Cooperangus, and it was just stunningly, stunningly beautiful. And I grew up in a place called Nig, and I used to sit over the Nig cliffs, and when I was trying to be an atheist, it was this that stopped me. It was this kind of thing. It was this kind of scenery. Because you can look at that, and this is what you can say. You can say, look at that, how God closed the flowers and all the rest of it. You can, you can look and you can say, this is one big, big freak. In all this vast universe, we just happen to be very, very, very lucky. This planet has water, this planet has air, this planet has oxygen. This planet is just the right distance from the sun so that it doesn't burn up because it's too close, so that it doesn't freeze because it's too far away. And you can say, this is just one massive fluke. Nobody designed this. This is just the way that it is. It's one massive fluke. And let me tell you this. If you believe that, You have no logical reason to think that your life is worth anything more than the cockroach or the ant when I was up there that I stood on accidentally as I was walking past there. It's just an ant. I didn't bury it. I didn't mourn for it. It was just an ant that got in the way. But if you believe that this whole planet, that if you believe that this life life is just one massive accident then you have no right to think that your suffering means anything or, in fact, that anyone else's suffering means anything. When people die in that cyclone in India, just the way. It's just chemicals, isn't it? You just happen to be part of a superior species and just like the rest, you will become dust. But let me tell you this. That whole creation screams at you No, there's a creator. How can you possibly go through life thinking that the beauty that is in this world, even though it is marred by sin, is just a freak? On the other hand, you can take the option of believing what God says, that he created it, which is the logical, sensible option. And you can believe what his word says, that you are made in his image and you are made for him. Why would you want to just collapse and die in insignificance? If that's your view, you have no answer for the suffering. The the only answer you have for the suffering as an atheist is just suck it up, because that's nature. Now you see all the implications of this. They're enormous. For example, you may be a very anxious person just now. You're worried about the bills you have to pay. You're worried about health. And what does Jesus say? He says, look, look at the lilies of the field. It's an orchid, but never mind. Look at the lilies of the field. That was in, in Holland. This guy... Uh, is in Holland. He just took such a thing to orchids. He made this massive orchid garden. And it's just really, really beautiful. I was just really stunned with the flowers. 
And what does Jesus say? He says, look at the lilies of the field. They don't sow. They don't spin. They don't go to Tesco's. They don't go to George and get their clothes. They don't go to Topshop or whatever it is and get their clothes. Look how they are clothed. So why are you worrying? If God created you, why are you worrying? Why are you not sleeping at night because you're thinking about the bill you've got to pay this week? God is not saying that bill is unreal. He's not saying it's an illusion. He's not saying sit and meditate and it'll go away. He's saying simply this. Do you think I don't care for you? Or look at the sparrows falling to the ground. Now let me say this again. If you do not believe in God, if you do not trust Jesus, then you should worry all the time. Because your worries are real. You are going to die. You are going to get ill. You are going to lack money. You are going to lose your job. And there's so little that you can do so much about, uh, about so much of it. So what do you do? You worry, you eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die and that's it. But I can't live like that. Because it's just not real, it's not true. This is how I have to live. I know the God who created me. I know that he will provide. I know that he sees the spiral fall. I know that he sees me. I know that in this vast, vast universe that he sees everything. He even knows And in some of you, this is more difficult than in my case. He knows the hairs on my head. He knows. He absolutely knows that. I find that extraordinary. I was hearing about somebody who um, has got, unlike me, has got a wonderful mane of hair. And they were visiting or babysitting in someone's house. And after they left, there was hair everywhere. And I think it's great to be able to have that problem. (laughs) But God knows. Every single hair that's fallen from every single individual. You look at the creation, even in a fallen and corrupt world, and you can see God clothing, God providing. Why are you worried? Or maybe you're lonely. You go up into the hills and you wander around, as I did on Friday, on your own. And you can be the real poetic romantic. You can be Wordsworth. I wandered lonely as a cloud. You walk out into nature, away from the city, and you're all alone. Yes, you are if there is no creator. If there is no creator, you're on your own. We are one tiny planet in a vast universe that could be wiped out by a meteorite at any time. You are just one of seven billion people and you could die in a thousand different ways by tomorrow. And you feel lonely and frightened. No wonder. No wonder you feel lonely and frightened if that's what you believe. You say, oh, if only I had a man, or if only I had a woman, if only I had someone to share my pain. And none of it works. And then you stand and you look and you realize that God created all this for his glory. You stand in all that beauty. And you know that God created it and it was good. And you realize that God created human beings, including you for him. And when you look at all of it in nature, you have to say, how can I be lonely when the God who created all of this walks with me and keeps me. And that brings us back to Jesus. How does that work? He suffered that we could be healed. He's the creator, the firstborn over all creation so that we can be redeemed, so that we can be saved. We are faced with two ways to live. And you have to learn this lesson. These two schools, the school of suffering and the school of creation. You don't want to fail in either of these schools. What is God saying to you in your suffering? What is God saying to you through his creation? He's shouting at you. He's whispering to you. He's screaming. He's he's 
teaching. He's telling you. He's showing you. You are not alone. You are not on your own. This suffering is not meaningless. There is a purpose, and the purpose is that you are fulfilled in me. One day I'd like to sing this, but I I, I want to finish um, with this hymn of Robert Murray McShane's. And, and, And I want to say to you, please, take the life that Jesus offers. Learn the lessons of suffering and creation. Take it, it's free, it's without money and without cost. You can't buy it. Take it and live. And these are McShane's words, and this was looking over towards Perth when I was up in the Sidlows. Listen to these words. I think they're beautiful. When this passing world is done, when I sunk yon glaring sun, when we stand with Christ in glory, looking o'er life's finished story, then, Lord, shall I fully know Not till then, how much I owe. When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Oft I walk beneath the cloud, dark as midnight's gloomy shroud, but when fear is at the height, Jesus comes and all is light. Blessed Jesus, Bid me show, doubting saints, how much I owe. And this is really the theme of what we've been looking at this morning. Oft the nights of sorrow reign, weeping, sickness, sighing, pain. But a night thine anger burns, morning comes, and joy returns. God of comfort, bid me show to thy poor how much I owe. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.